Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. I'm Brian Cerberus Wilson, and I am joined by the effortlessly, effortlessly handsome Fokian Dionysus. Today, we will be discussing David Sidorsky's 2001 article, The Third Concept of Liberty and the Politics of Identity. Uh, this is the final session in our course, Understanding Modern Liberty, and I think this is a pretty fitting end to it. Uh, so today, Fokin is going to start us off by walking through how the different concepts of liberty that David Sidorsky kind of borrows from uh, Isaiah Berlin and then builds on them and extends them, how one mode of liberty transforms into another mode of liberty. Like why, why, why does this happen, Fokin? Why can't we just have the uh, unalienable or inalienable rights um, from the founders? Why did these things change? Right. They change, uh, and it looks as if they change necessarily. Um, so I'm going, what I'm going to do to help uh, our dear listeners uh, sort of get a gist of what Sidorsky's talking about, why he thinks there needs to be something called a third concept of liberty. I think when it comes to scholars and even popular uh, political debate, a lot of times we still think of there being kind of two kinds of liberty, negative liberty and positive liberty. And a lot of people would think of uh, today's identity politics as an ex just an extension or growth of the original sort of progressive view of positive liberty that Isaiah Berlin discussed in that essay. <clears throat> um, so it's the third concept of liberty because there are three concepts of liberty. The first two are negative liberty and positive liberty, uh, as we've talked about in our previous courses. Negative liberty being that kind of liberty that you read about when you read about, uh, as Cerber said, inalienable rights and the founding era, American political theory starts out, always starts out with Locke, inalienable rights of life, liberty, property, and their derivatives, things of this kind. Um, these rights historically and even as, in a sense dialectically seem to give way or to, when you get really serious about them, they seem to necessitate a move toward what is called positive right. So, for example, a person has, you can say, a right to the right to life, liberty, and property protected by the government when no one is allowed to do them violence to you know steal or murder the, these kinds of things have to, when the government enforces contracts. But then, what happens if there are uh, some people in society whom are they're so you can say needy or helpless that just protecting them from violence in a sense still leaves them without a chance. That is the, you can say, popular progressive reason for moving past those old negative rights into positive rights. Now, mm -hmm. So positive rights then would seem to be the government's duty to citizens to help them realize their potential. Mm -hmm. What Sidorsky 
does is he distinguishes, you can say, different ways of realizing your potential. Does the government help you realize your potential, like your real potential, according to the government's understanding of what that potential and what that good is? Or are you really the final creator and arbiter of what your potential is or means, right? Is there a woman inside of you crying to break out, right? Or, you know, the transgender things. Or um, is there, if you're a woman, is there a soldier inside of you? Or if you have, um, if you're a member of an identity that, for a very long time has been portrayed negatively. Is there a positive portrayal really inside of you? And, and, is, and is that portrayal up to you or is it up to society or the government's idea of what is good? And obviously in modern, you know, in today's politics uh, or, you know, 20 years ago when Sidorsky was thinking and writing about these things, we were no longer, we are no longer willing to say government and society, its idea of what is good is a sufficient ground uh, or sufficient standard that to use to determine whether people are uh, fulfilling their potential. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, now there's all sorts of, you know, popular arguments against this notion of liberty. It's a pretty wild notion of liberty. Um, But what drives each stage is a sort of discovery that the previous stage wasn't enough. Um, Wasn't enough to provide. Right. Or yeah, what what was it not enough for? Um, well, it wasn't enough to really provide liberty, right? Uh, so if you have, in the negative liberty sense, you have the right to life, liberty, or property. I mean, right, negative rights, in a sense, someone might even say negative rights aren't even enough to provide life, much less liberty. Mm-hmm. Because just just because this person or this group of people are not are protected from violence. They're not given a seat at the table. They're not given work. They're not given access to food, perhaps, right? Um, No one has to sell them food. No one has to give them food. Um, No one has to give them shelter. Or uh, think of, you know, our, (laughs) I heard this phrase uh, very recently, our under-resourced communities, um, Mm. historically, you can say minority neighborhoods, um, such as Flint, Michigan, where the water is bad. Isn't that, in a mm-hmm. sense, no one is really violating their negative rights, but the misery and poverty in which these people find themselves stunts their, not only stunts their growth, but may even lead to sickness and death. And so right. it's not enough just to keep the wolves at bay. You have to reach out a humanitarian hand and grasp that, you know, person, help them up. Um, right. I, so that, I mean, I've always found the transition from negative to positive rights 
practically compelling for this reason, because obviously these situations, you know, arise. Um, but what is not, what has never been compelling to me is calling the movement from one set of rights to another progress. Because to me, it, it mm. clearly marks a sort of decline where uh, previously your country was able to get along uh, relatively well in this other mode of thinking about rights, but then something must have happened that made uh, negative rights not persuasive uh, or not compelling to people. And mm -hmm. that, I mean, why that happens is clearly people in a sense be have become um, less independent uh, and more, and I'm not even saying this is anyone's fault, um, but the fact is, is that clearly poverty increases and people have less financial and even spiritual independence. And as a result of that loss, they uh, begin to make more demands on the respect or, or what's popular, uh, the care and concern, more demands on the care and concern of others. This is a sort of um, Ronald Dorkin, yeah, Ronald Dorkin or his father, Dorkin, you know, um, mm -hmm. uses this phrase to indicate how the court needs to begin fulfilling rights, showing people care and concern. That's the best way to mm -hmm. bring them up to the level of um, bearers or possessors of rights. And this third, this third concept of liberty is, you know, just that, uh, you know, in hyperdrive where every pain can lead to a desire for self redefinition. I mean, I think the main reason someone wants to really redefine who they are is because they don't like who they are. Right. And this concept of Liberty is in a sense, all about redefining identity, which means it's born out of, a genuine dislike of, of an identity of a historically powerful or historically painful identity. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think you, uh, you have a sort of discussion of this decline from the perspective of uh, types of people involved. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I have some stuff to say to what you said about the third concept of liberty, but maybe this can come up when I go through the three different types. Um, yeah, so maybe we'll, we'll come back to this in just sure. a moment. So I'm going to go back over the same ground that Fokian just went over in a different way, which is to say that as I was reading the article, it struck me that there's a certain sense in which these three types of liberty seem to be for, broadly speaking, three sort of different types of human beings. Um, so let's start with the type of man that negative liberty is for. So Sokin already brought out negative liberty demarcates the sphere of the individual from the sphere of political authority. So there should be some area of your life that the government's not allowed to touch. Um, in the American context, this kind of liberty originally took the form of inalienable natural rights. So what kind of person are inalienable natural rights well suited for? Well, I think that they are well suited for a man whose habits of self-government prepare him to take care of himself. Negative liberty is designed for men who know what freedom is for and who don't need to be told what it's for, namely the pursuit of excellence and its various forms. 
Um, at the beginning of the article, Sidorsky, who initially follows Berlin in his conceptualization of freedom, talks about freedom understood as emancipation from slavery or of escaping colonial domination. In other words, it seems that many people understand liberty as constantly escaping from the grasp of others. There's no constructive vision for their freedom, no positive, well, I don't want to use the word positive here to get confused about what kind of liberty we're speaking of, but there's no constructive vision for their freedom. Uh, that's how many people conceptualize freedom is always escaping from something. And so, but the man of negative liberty is the man who's already thrown off the shackles of colonial rule. He's already proved that he's powerful enough and strong enough to govern himself and to rule over the land that he has. And so the man of negative liberty is the one who turns to the frontier for adventure and to build new things, knowing that he will have to fend for himself when he gets there. Um, and to say one more thing, to bring in some of the language that Sidorsky uses, we could say that uh, the man of negative liberty is able, generally speaking, to reconcile himself to the constraints of nature, the burdens of history, and the burdens of traditions. In other words, this man, without having to do any theorizing, I'm not saying that, you know, the American frontiersmen are all, you know, reading uh, great works of political <laughs> philosophy, maybe a couple of them, but most of them didn't have to do that. Um, they just sort of intuitively understood that in a certain sense, man is thrown into a world that existed long before he did, and in which inequalities of all kinds are a fundamental fact. Uh, there's a lot of chance that determines things, um, but nevertheless, he still feels that the world is good. Um, and this, the kind of negative liberty is for a man who thinks that he can forge a good life for himself without having to depend on others. So this would be like a kind of provisional outline of the kind of uh, type that negative liberty is for. Fokin, would you add or subtract anything to the type of man that negative liberty is for? I think your description was a good one. It focuses on his independence uh, I mean, the only the, the only way in which you know he's not independent is insofar as he's a member of society where a government has to protect his rights. Um, mm -hmm. Presumably, even you know, like the frontiersman, in a sense, he's a negative rights guy, but in another sense, he's like in the state of nature, maybe a little bit. Um, right, right. So it's almost like I think at best the kind of habits that the negative rights should or could be building in you are such that you would also do well in the state of nature. But I can also see how maybe over time they would condition you not to do so well out there. Um, right. And I mean, even obviously, according to the Lockean view, these negative rights or the natural rights are operative in the state of nature. Um, but that's a whole nother, whole nother thing. But when it comes to like government securing the rights of the governed, um, it, the, the point is, is that that requires, or at least my view, that, that requires so much less in earlier times than it does today. It was much easier for, gov for governments to secure the rights of the governed because they had to do a lot less because the men were more independent. Uh, and frontiersmen right. and men like, like the ones you describe, are they fit that mold. Right. And, and even this makes me think that there's something kind of weird about using Berlin's terminology of negative liberty as opposed to natural rights. Um, I mean, Berlin sort of tries to bring out in his essay 
that men disagree so much about the ground of the rights that it's almost problematic to talk about the ground. So if you're talking about nature as the ground of the rights, well, a lot of people feel like they you know don't agree with what that means or don't even know what it means. And so the negative liberty, I don't know, it sounds to me kind of like an abstraction or more of an abstraction uh, that can be played around with more. I don't know. Maybe we can talk about that more once we get to the third concept of liberty yeah, again. I'll but, just add, I think the best benefit uh, when it comes to using, say, Lockean language and saying natural rights is that you get the sort of contrast with natural law. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay. So then let's talk about uh, positive liberty again and the type of man that positive liberty seems designed for. Um, so to kind of repeat, we could say that positive liberty is about self-realization. One is only free if he or his group can realize their potentialities, and they are not free if either internal inhibiting conditions or environing historical factors have placed impediments on his self-realization, which is to say the government may not be coercing you very much or at all, but if you don't have much money, you don't feel very free. Uh, thus, positive liberty allows the government to coerce or extract resources from those that were successful under the negative liberty regime in order to enhance the social welfare of large groups. Positive liberty is therefore for, you know, I, I don't know if that there's any other way to say this, but for a lower type of man, for someone whose life is conditioned by stress and deprivation. They are not thinking about new frontiers or building new things or thinking about excellence. Uh, rather, they're thinking about how to just merely survive. Um, and so we see then that the two concepts of liberty seem to pit their adherence against each other. Um, or perhaps a different way to put it is that positive liberty emerges only in light of an antagonism that was already present between two different types of men. Um, is there anything, Folkin, that you would add to the type of man that positive liberty is designed for? There is, I had this thought that a man who needs the promotion of his civil rights or his civil liberties in some sense believes that these things can become his possessions through promotion of, of others. That That's a very convoluted way of saying uh, there are men who believe that liberty can be given to them rather than merely taken. Mm. And I think mm. that's a big, that's a very common belief today. The like liberty and self-fulfillment and uh, self-respect can be given um, and received. Right. <clears throat> Whereas under the older view, say of negative rights or natural rights, uh, it does seem much more the case that, no one believes these things can necessarily be given. The only thing that can be done is you can stop other people from taking them from you in, in a sense. Right. Right. Nice. That's good. Um, okay. So then let's turn to the third concept of liberty and what kind of person this is for. Uh, so I think, Foki, when we were on the phone the other day, you had said something striking when we were talking about the article. Um, I think you said something to the effect of, the third concept of liberty is for the man who needs everything about him affirmed by the state, no matter what it is, or something like that. Um, so that no matter what he chooses, the state has to say that it's good, that you have to be given this respect as opposed to 
um, earning it or just flowing naturally out of whatever it is that you're doing, that somehow the state can give you these things, even or especially, or maybe what's most striking about it is that you don't even have to supply a reason that right. uh, when it comes to the third concept of liberty, it's a free choice. You're being authentic um, so long as you're not choosing something on the basis of some sort of external push to be like that. But you have to be the sole arbiter of the decision. And it's you making this kind of free decision is precisely what makes you human as distinguished from the other animals who can't make these kind of arbitrary or kind of random uh, choices or choices for which you don't have to provide any account or any reason that it's almost insulting to ask for the reason um, that you're being oppressive somehow by forcing somebody to give an account of why they would like to do this kind of thing. So the man or the human being, uh, maybe we'll say the human being who longs for the third concept of liberty is one who flees from history, nature, and tradition. Any imposition from the outside, any limit on choice, any pressure that moves one toward any shape that is not willed by the individual is thought to be bad. Um, and uh, this next comment, it flows out of something I heard uh, Jordan Peterson say in an interview. He wasn't necessarily talking about the third concept of liberty in particular, but I think he was talking about something pretty similar. So um, the only people who think this is, these are, here's his words. Uh, the only people who think that their identities are subjectively defined are two-year-olds. They can't bring their align, they can't bring their identity into alignment with social norms. Three-year-olds, uh, as opposed to two-year-olds, they start to negotiate a social identity, a sophisticated, uh, which would be a more sophisticated identity. So, um, you might say that we, to some extent, renegotiate our identities when we talk to each other. Um, in other words, the adherence of the third concept of liberty is, in a certain sense, effectually a two-year-old. They're concentrated only on their own will, and they also seem to believe that magic can undo various pressures, constraints, and obstacles that make us feel uncomfortable. Um, yeah, so it's, this is the kind of person who wants to kind of have some kind of safe space bubble around them. Um, whereas like, it seems to me that, you know, we learn a lot when people don't laugh at our jokes, when they tell us that we're being boring, uh, when they tell, when somebody tells us not to do something, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that the, the person telling us what to do is always correct, but they may not be at all. But it seems uh, that the, the type of person that the third concept of liberty is designed for is somebody who can't handle just, yeah, somebody telling them that they're not funny, or that they're not very interesting uh, or not special enough or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, it's like the third concept of liberty seems like it's every person, no matter how weak and insignificant, should think of themselves as if they were a monarch or a potentate of some sort, right? <laughs> I mean, because you don't, you don't ask the monarch for his reasons, you know? But right. uh, and everyone else, you do. Everyone else, you're like, do you have a reason? I mean, unless you're like, say, in the chain of command in the military or something. But the, the point is, is that you're right when you point out you cannot ask for their reasons for why they think they are the way they are. Because if you do, then that sort of opens up the possibility that they can be wrong about themselves, that other people can be more right about them than they are about themselves and have, in a sense, a right in defining who they are. And, yeah. uh, which is, you know, um, for normal people, that's just called living in society, but, f uh, for, for, for <laughs> great potentates, um, like 
our common run of the mill uh, leftist today, it's it's insufferable. I mean, it's a huge slap in the face. Right, right. And uh, there's like something Sidorsky points out that he's sort of uh, thinking about Sartre's play The Flies. I've never read this, but at least uh, by Sidorsky's account, uh, there's human there's human beings or something like that or flies who end up like defying Zeus's will. And they know that they will lose, and yet they do what they're going to do anyway. And so, so some people might be kind of attracted to this attempt to do the impossible. Um, but at least with like Sartre's version of this, or the kind of thing that Storsky pulls out of that, um, the con- there are still the constraints of reality, which is to say that somebody stronger than you can just destroy you. You could be a fly to somebody else. But it seems like what this turns into is not that at least with the Sartre version, even if it's kind of absurd or dumb or something like that, you can at least see why it's somewhat attractive to a decent person in a certain sense. But it seems like there's a shift with the third concept of liberty to now I am a woman. It's not just that I want to be a woman or something like that. Like that, whereas like Sartre would admit that the person longs for something impossible. The people today who are longing for something impossible really try to insist that it's somehow real. Um, that it really is that a woman has come into being um, through this, like, uh, surgery, like, whatever, through, uh, yeah, slicing you up <laughs> some. Right. Uh, to put it politely, I guess. So, yeah, I don't know if there's anything else to say about the types. Um, there might be, but maybe you want to start to talk about some of the remarks that Sidorsky makes at the end of the article. I certainly, but before I do, you did say that you perhaps had um, something to add about the opening. Oh, I think I oh, just okay. did. This is what I just said okay, is more okay. or less what I had. Very good. Um, so Sidorsky ends the essay talking about, in a sense, three normal grounds for criticizing this kind of uh, liberty. They are nature, history, and uh, something called like values or ends. Um, So the idea is that all of these, these three things each um, imply all these three, these three things are unavoidable and they imply or bring about some sort of constriction on liberty. Um, so when he talks about the you know restriction that nature puts on this concept of liberty, he he talks about women in combat. Um, he's like, it may be the case that technology is making it so that women can be uh, effective frontline soldiers, but the fact that you need technology to make this possible is a sign that nature still has a say in these kinds of things. You have to take nature into account, mm-hmm. even if in taking into account, you want to overcome it. So he doesn't make an argument really against overcoming nature. He just merely says it should be taken into account. Uh, and I think he mm-hmm. might've gotten uh, some pushback on that 20 years ago. Um, likewise, history, you know, uh, it's possible to erase some things of the past and have them forgotten, uh, leave them behind, or even redefine or reinterpret them, but not everything. Um, 
history still has a say. And even if you sort of overcome uh, your own personal past or your group overcomes its past in, in some decisive way, in overcoming the past, you just bring into existence um, new historical facts, new historical um, boundaries to your identity. Uh, so he talks about how uh, Israel went from being stateless to having a state, uh, or the uh, not, the Jews went from having no state to having Israel, and they um, they're not simply free to now that now they're bound by the need to defend a state to keep the economy solvent uh, to do these kinds of things. So um, basically, the idea is that historical facts uh, or society. Um, it might seem like it's variable or changeable, and it is, but it's not changeable at will. Uh, it, it takes effort. Right. Just like nature isn't changeable at will, it takes effort. Um, and then finally, he talks about, you know, the need to balance the, to balance rights, um, which is, of course, uh, in line with our nation's jurisprudence on this question, uh, the Supreme Court for decades has just decided um, our rights conflict and there's no way around this. And because they conflict, the different um, values and different rights have to be balanced. So uh, by balance, that means sometimes this right wins out. Sometimes that one wins out. Uh, the court claims to avoid any sort of arbitrary action in this regard, but uh, not exactly successful. Um, but what, so, I mean, what is he, how does it make sense? It makes sense if you think of say liberty at times being at odds with say economic equality or liberty can be also at odds with, uh, security or safety. Um, in a sense, it's like saying liberty has to be rational liberty. I mean, Locke dealt with this many, many uh, Enlightenment philosophers dealt with the thought that private and political rights can conflict or even different private rights can conflict. And they believed that they reconciled this problem. But it, uh, by the time you get to multiculturalism in society, uh, it becomes really difficult for people to believe that say, the right to religious toleration can just be um, followed without any, you know, chance of it contradicting the public safety or the public morals or equality, things like this. So mm -hmm. um, now what I wanted to point out is that this kind of criticism of Sidorsky's is not that unfamiliar in conservative intellectual uh, history in the United States. I mean, you get even going back to um, that Richard Weaver book, Ideas Have Consequences, his basic, uh, his basic objection to a lot of progressivism was you all pretend that nature is changeable, uh, that there is no, if, if there, is, I mean, even if there is a nature, that there is no like real inherent nature in things. Um, 
and that there's no say right and wrong. You're in a sense relativist. This is his accusation. And I think there's something to be said for the view that the major debate in Western society is the debate between relativism and natural right or relativism in nature, uh, relativism in truth and morality, the idea that there are true things or the idea that all truth and all morality is relative. This this divide in this debate, I do think, uh, and, I, and I think Sidorsky is operating in a sense within these, these parameters. He's saying, look, there is this thing that's not merely controllable by your will that if you're going to if you're going to control it it at least makes resistance that is felt and needs to be taken into account and not ignored um so in a sense he's standing up for something uh if not absolute at least absolutely there absolutely in existence mm-hmm. history exists nature exists if you want if human beings want to overcome uh these they have to work at it, not just merely wish for it. Um, and I think that's all well and good as far as it goes. But I also would, I like myself, I, pr- I prefer the kinds of arguments that say, even if these things could be overcome decisively, even if nature and history uh, could be willed away, uh, that would be bad. That would not be preferable to um, what we now have. Those are the kinds of arguments mm-hmm. I prefer. So I prefer, like, it, when someone is trying to debate, oh, is there absolute truth or not? I, mm, we've all just seen how many times the uh, leftist is able to say, oh, no, I believe in absolute truth. And this, so it seems like the real debate is between egalitarianism and inegalitarianism. I'll put it that way. Right. right. And yeah, so it seems like Sidorsky does a better job than Berlin does, for instance, because it seems like I think you had said <laughs> that Berlin, you know, had written the two concepts of liberty essay with the hopes that he would be able to say like, yeah, here's like the ground of negative liberty and why it's good and why you can't just have positive liberty and why negative liberty always needs to be a feature in any decent regime or any good regime. But then he ends up having to like... Sh- throw up his arms and be like, ah, there's just this infinite conflict. I don't, I don't know what to do about it, but I like this other thing a lot more. Um, whereas, as you point out, Sidorsky sort of tries to find something solid to say like, look, there's something that exists that constrains human beings such that the third concept of liberty is eventually going to like run into, if not a buzzsaw, at least some kind of like wall that doesn't allow it to be completely formless or shapeless or something like that. Um, Oh, go ahead. No, no, I didn't. I wasn't going to say anything. Okay, well, because then I think then what you say next ties in pretty well with what I want to say about uh, the third con- the, the the third concept of liberty presents itself as being value neutral or as being a kind of neutrality. But I think what that neutrality hides is exactly what you're getting at: um, is this uh, conflict between egalitarianism and non or elitism or something like that. Um, that it, that it sort of conceals the conflict. So, I mean, this is something I suppose that Carl Schmitt would be helpful on, uh, that liberalism tries to be neutral. There's a lot to say about that, but but at least this, this third concept of liberty tries especially hard to be neutral. And I think 
one of the strangest, yeah, and yet rhetorically powerful things that adherents of the third concept of liberty claim is that their account of liberty is neutral. Their claim to neutrality is what I think is part of uh, what attracts otherwise reasonable people who don't fully grasp all that the third concept entails. It sounds neutral to the ears of many to say that a child should choose for themselves how they want to live their lives. That that not only to them seems, well, somehow seems to them good and neutral that we would say that, but they, it, but it sounds so good to them that they're somehow able to say that to themselves that it's neutral. Um, now, to turn back, Fokin had brought up the, the Supreme Court. And so a kind of powerful expression of this kind of thinking um, occurs in a dissenting opinion in the 1972 Supreme Court case, Wisconsin v. Yoder. So this is the case where it's like the Amish in Wisconsin claim that high school education in the United States is corrupting to the souls of Amish children, that it's not value neutral, that it makes kids competitive and uh, endangers their salvation. So the court rules in favor of the Amish, mostly because they say the Amish turn out well. Uh, it doesn't seem like it's a very principled reason, although maybe that's a good enough reason. But the dissenting opinion is what's interesting. So this comes from Justice Douglas. He says, quote, if a parent keeps his child out of school beyond the grade school, then the child will be forever barred from entry into the new and amazing world of diversity that we have today. If a child is harnessed to the Amish way of life by those in authority over him, and if, if his education is truncated, his entire life may be stunted and deformed, end quote. Um, so we see that Douglas is concerned with the possibility that the Amish children are being brainwashed, uh, mentally mutilated or something. And, and in this way, they are deprived of the opportunity to live a fully human life. He wants the children to have a say in their education, and he privileges the individual autonomy, which I think would be something like the current third concept of liberty, or something like this, uh, this liberty of the child over and against his parents' wishes. In this way, he's trying to be neutral. I think that's the position he wants to express. But you can see um, in Douglas's view, or in what I quoted above, that he talks about this new and amazing world of diversity, which is to say he makes a value-laden imposition um, of his own. For while there are many that you know believe diversity is a strength, there's others like Ed Erler um, in his book, The United States in Crisis. He has this nice quote. He says, any nation that believes that diversity is its strength has already made the decision to dissolve itself. <laughs> um, in other words, so like we, there's nothing at all neutral about saying diversity is good. Whether it ultimately ends up being good or not, it's going to be not neutral no matter what. Um, so ooh, let me say one more thing. Um, so to people, so people think that handing, or you could say that a, Somebody who likes the third concept of liberty might think in the following way. They almost think that you should hand a child a pamphlet when they turn 18 that has 1,001 religions in it, um, and that this is the only way to avoid brainwashing them. Otherwise, you'll force them into a life that they would have never chosen for themselves. But introducing religion in this detached way at such a late age already makes it that much more difficult to take the idea of religion seriously. In other words, as Sadorsky suggests, Adherents of the third concept of liberty believe that a child should be raised without being previously obligated, conditioned, or compelled by a particular tradition, so that the child would be free to choose even such things as his national self-identification and his own religious identity. But by attempting not to impose anything, 
I think it's pretty obvious that the, the parent or educator wittingly or unwittingly prepares their child to long for a world without uh, religion. Uh, maybe something like John Lennon's Imagine Song. Um, so no borders, no genders, no hierarchies at all. Um, that To be neutral or to pretend to be neutral is to prepare uh, the children for a world in which the students who raise their hands first and highest are quietly removed from the room or something like that so that nobody feels too bad. Because it seems like there's not really a way to boost everybody up. All you can really do is, you know, cut the grass. It's harder to make all the grass grow. So you have to cut down the grass that's tall. Um, so anyway, it seems like that people want to say that the third concept of liberty is th- there's something neutral about it, about not imposing anything. But it seems like there's an orientation uh, and a worldview or a desire to make the world a certain way that underlies um, the account of the third concept of liberty. I like that you refer to Wisconsin versus Yoder and the, and this idea of like raising children neutrally that, I mean, if you think about it, what's, what's, is it justice Douglas who dissents? So yeah, right. I mean, um, justice Douglas is concerned. uh, Presumably he would, you know, never let you never have uh, women or really anyone get married young, for example. Um, because mm-hmm. these kinds of constraints or determination, no serious guys until you're third, right? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> these kinds of determinations when you're young, they sort of like it's like you become, you know, if uh, a young if you a young woman becomes a wife when she's very young, she stops living for herself when she's very young, um, especially if she mm-hmm. has kids. And when you stop when you start living for others, then you're no longer living to fulfill your potential, so to speak, or the, right. the direction your life will take can can be determined by you know duties to others or mm, just their interests you know so but the flip side of this is parents treating children neutrally sounds in a sense like really unloving like um, yeah. I really think this is the best way of life and the true religion but I don't like, I'm not going to really try very hard to get you to agree, to get you to, to adapt or adopt rather this way of life. So it's like, there's a sense in which uh, someone who makes strong demands, you want someone to make strong demands on you because in, if, if they do, that's how you know they love you or that's how you know that they have a high regard for you. You know, you don't because otherwise you wouldn't right. make high demands on the person. You're like, I, you know, I don't I don't care if you live up to the religion or not. I don't think you can or like it doesn't matter to me if you do, <laughs> you know. Um, so I really think like um, there's a sense in which a lot of the listlessness that we hear about with uh, young people today is in a sense like they no one really holds out great rewards for them because no one's really making uh, great demands of them. And so what do they do? You know, right. There's not, there's not, there's no great demand. So therefore there's no great reward. There's not going to be a great reward for action or for effort if there's no great demand, but a great demand in the sense that justice Douglas thinks of it predetermines uh, your growth 
in a way that maybe isn't absolutely your preference or inner desire or something like that, something that's magically more you than what you end up being. Right. Right. It is. Yeah. And the language of like, you know, that you need to be developing your potentialities as opposed to living for others, you know, as if like the living for others isn't its own potentiality as you're you know pointing out, but, but also like, what is it that is actually going to be accomplished? You know, this, it reminds me of something Alan Bloom says in the closing of the American mind um, with respect to female liberation uh, that like maybe a lot of women, they meant well, but they sort of like imagined that the men who were working, you know, various office jobs were like having an amazing time doing that only to find out that like the office sucks, you know, most jobs are not fun. Um, and that uh, sure you, you still might want that option or something to that effect, but there's a sort of the idea of like developing potentialities. Like we assume that that means that you'll develop something that's really, really awesome, but only a few people get to do really, really awesome things. Like, not many people end up writing movies or you know get paid enough to write books that they can do that for a living or something like that. So most people aren't even developing a potentiality that's born out and maybe that leads to greater disappointments than there might have been. And you know, if you had just been given something when you were younger, it's like, well, what did you wind up doing with your life? Like uh so anyway, so it's like there's this sort of like you imbue people with this like hope, you know, just keep waiting, keep developing your potentiality, don't commit to anything and things will turn out better than you could possibly hope for. But as you're pointing out, well, nobody made any great demands of them. So why would we expect it? How could they expect to turn out well without great demands? Because it's very hard to place great demands on yourself. Um, well, yeah, you can't really reward. You. I mean, it's not you, like if, so, you know, how there are so many uh, young people today. If like some wealthy person came and said, look, okay, I need you to get in shape. And if you get in shape, then I'll give you this money they would all get in shape. Now that's a very crass, you know, example. But the point is, is that um, people uh, are really motivated when they, someone from higher up in the arc, uh, hierarchy of society or of life looks down on them and says like, if you prove yourself like good, I will pull you up, you know? Um, so <clears throat> this is like really motivating when it ha when it happens <laughs> um but right. when you live in a neutral society i mean like we, you know anyone who goes to grad school sees this operative you see like a lot of your fellow uh students like striving really, really like working really really hard for the um praise of their professors because they know that that means good things that's that's reasonable and that's how things should work but in a like a world of like neutral education or in a, an attempt where, you know, K through 12 education uh, is like really an attempt to be neutral where teachers aren't, they don't want to make demands on your character or, you know, or they don't want to make demands on your physical fitness and things of this kind. It leaves a lot of young people like at sea. Um, that's why right. that, that famous high school that did the sort of fitness program. Yeah. Well, Sierra. That's why they are like, so in a sense, it's like such an obvious model because you just know that if young people had that kind of incentive, that it really would work. Right. Right. There needs to be some kind of external pressure with praise and blame. I mean, insofar as it seems like most human beings are moved to do what they do on the basis of pleasure and pain. 
um, then you just like modulate these things in the right way and people will turn out a little bit better than they would otherwise. And maybe the right combination of pleasure and pain prepares them to be reasonable in the future and therefore deserving of their freedom because they'll know what to do with it when they, when they have it, if they have it. Yeah. And very few really will. I mean, that's the, I mean, the big thing is like, if you know, you, you build society around, um, the perfection of the human potential, it's like, uh, very few people are ever going to get that perfection and they miss out on the chance at being regimented. Right. Right. Yeah. Something like, uh, yeah, you, you assume, so I get my neutral education and when I get plucked up randomly to do something heroic, I'll be ready to do something heroic as opposed to, you know, instead of a hero being formed by one action, it's like your whole lifetime would prepare you to do that one action later. Um, but only if you're good. Yeah. So I think the, that the justice Douglas example is just perfect because, uh, he really, his view really has to be society as society is not really allowed to take a very strong interest in how youth turn out. Right. And by t not taking a strong interest, you make them turn out worse than they would have otherwise. It does like end up orienting, orienting them in a certain direction. Yeah. Now, and, and then that almost makes them want to like use relativism even more as a kind of like weapon to protect themselves from the standards because like they weren't raised with high standards. And so then you want to use like the relativism corrosive acid to like defend yourself. But it's like, so, which is why the, the, it's wrong to say that the debate is between natural rights and relativism because the people who use relativism or help themselves to it, don't turn it in on itself or turn it on the things like on well, I guess you could say they only turn it against standards that demand something of them so that they can be a certain way. Yeah, it's always about that, for sure. I mean, everyone with any sense can see that the uh, the Biden administration <clears throat> is in no sense uh, relativistic about enforcing, you know, certain egalitarian morals. Right. Or this poor, you know, the poor, the since we're, we've talked about the court – this poor baker from the masterpiece cake shop thing. He's, he's been dragged through, he's been dragged into like a civil rights commission again. Um, so right. No relativism for him. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. No relativism for him and no relativism for us. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything that you'd like to finish with or should we? Yeah, let's, well, I guess sign off. I think this has been a really enjoyable course on it's helped me think through you know not only the, there's like an historical progress to our popular concepts of liberty but there's a very much an internal dialectical movement that can be moved in various ways uh, and that has serious you know political consequences when it you can say goes south um so thank you. It's, it's been a really pleasant course. I've enjoyed these podcasts. I look forward to what we have cooked up next. Yes. Okay, very good. So we will hope for the return of nature and do everything in our power to restore the uh, negative liberty tradition to the United States. Uh, okay, in. good. So uh, <laughs> Brian, Cerberus Wilson, and Folky and Dionysus are out. <laughs>